Hello and welcome to Read It For The Pictures, the comic book podcast where we read it for the pictures. I'm Dave Clark, and Brandy, you're a fine girl, what a good wife you would be, but my life, my lover, my lady, is Neil Caput. How you doing, Neil? I don't know where that's from, but I appreciate the sentiment. Today we have two comics that are, or at least we thought they were both big crossover events. There's DC Comics' Dark Knight's Metal Number 1, written by Scott Snyder, illustrated by Greg Capullo, with inks by Jonathan Galapian and colors by Foucault Plansensia, and one which turned out not to be a crossover, Secret Weapons from Valiant, number three, written by Eric Hessier, illustrated by Raul Allen and Patricia Martin. I saw a bunch of advertisements for this at the comic shop, and I just assumed it was a crossover event, but no, this is like a small, like sort of a small-scale team book, which, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. A pleasant one, because I don't think there's ever been a crossover event that's genuinely good i think there have been some that have been fun and in that kind of stupid bombastic way but uh, feel free to express your rage in the comment section listeners yes a while back on a facebook status update i was rating all the marvel events in recent years and none of them are what i'd consider like a really great comic that moved me in any way and only a few of them i considered an adequate reading experience but then again, we are just reading for the pictures, so we'll try not to get in too much into the script, such as it is. Yeah, suffice to say, the script of Metal is completely insane. Agree with the sentiment, but I don't think it's insane in the kind of way that's particularly entertaining, at least not in the second half, since there are basically two halves to this comic, right? Yeah, there's like an Indiana Jones cold open which shows the end of some previous adventure, and they're, like, the previous adventure that they use just to set up what the Justice League do are them being gladiators on an alien planet ruled by Mongol, and them, like, taking control of these, like, evil robots and then turning them into a Megazord, which, I don't know, that seems like a cool comic on its own, but that's just the cold open. And then we have the second half, which is part of this larger conspiracy Batman's been studying about the Dark Multiverse and the Dark Knights who are part of this ancient tribe of bats and the ancient tribe of birds, including, I guess, Hawkman and Hawkgirl and all their reincarnations that's been fighting them. Oh, and Red Tornado is rebooted here. The Challengers of the Unknown are rebooted here. And Dream from Neil Gaiman Sandman shows up at the very end as part of a cliffhanger because surely the kind of people who read Neil Gaiman comics are going to be all over this. Yeah, spoilers, people. I suppose I should be attentive for, for spoilers, even if they're spoilers I don't think are worth caring about. But... Yeah, this is it's a very odd comic. It's got little reference... It reboots a bunch of properties and ties them together into this secret organization. It, like, 
is connected to the return of Bruce Wayne stuff somehow, which was when, for those who don't know, Batman was shot back in time by Darkseid, an evil Dark God, and then chased by a demon bat called Barbatos, which I thought well, that was part of the old continuity before they rebooted everything. And no, they kept Grant Morrison's Batman in continuity. They even tried to, like, squeeze it into the insistent five-year timeline of the New 52, so that I have no idea how that would work with Damien, who's ten years old, but... Yeah, that's... Well, we're not here to pull apart DC continuity, because... They do a good job pulling it apart themselves, as we see here. But, yeah, basically just a lot of references to better comics you should read instead, if you're reading for the words, that is. What do you think of the art here? Yeah, the art is, it's a bit different. Well, it's a bit different within sort of a spectrum of, like, house-style comic. We read um, Jesus, a, um, a book that Jesus Sias did, did last week, and that had a lot, like, a lot more... It seemed to lean a, little, a lot more on colouring and cross-hatching. Like, some pages were, like, almost full-on paintings and other ones were like had cross hatching and a lot more gradient in the colors but this in in most of the places actually the coloring is almost flat there'll be like a tiny bit of a gradient but this is the art the entire creative team including the art team for when scott snyder was doing batman so these are all people who've worked together for a long time now and is a cohesive style that works we're last week we were dealing with a comic that was a lot of fill-ins to just to get it out on time yeah it's um i imagine when like you've got a team of people like including the uh, the writer right who've been working like together you sort of get a sense of who can pick up what and what you can rely on them to do yeah it seems that like the colorist sort of well i don't know it seems like the because the colouring is so minimal, like, a lot of it is being held up by the pencils and the inks. Like, a lot of, like, the pages work because the spot, the spot blacks are done in a way that balances out. And, like, there's a, a handful of, like, dramatic shots where like, characters will be in shadow. Yeah, it's, like, this could almost work as a black and white thing. I think it could work as a black and white thing. On the other hand... I feel like the spot blacks are never used in a way that feels gratuitous with the rest of the art. In terms of dramatic lighting, there are only a few examples, like on Dream's face at the end, with his faces enclosed are in shadow. And, oh, wait, I just realized they redesigned Dream slash Morpheus here, didn't they? He has usually... He's wearing all black and has this Robert Cure thing, but now he's got this elaborate tunic with shoulder pads and like a big turquoise belt buckle and necklace. Yeah, it's um, I wouldn't have known it was Dream unless he he said he was Dream, and then who knows? Maybe that's the twist. I'm not even the biggest Sandman fan, but this does feel. Like, it just shouldn't be here. You said, we talked about this a little bit earlier, and you said it felt all over the place, and I agreed, but I thought it 
was all over the place in like a fun kooky way like if you got- I, th- I would agree for the first half because that's a fight scene that has actual things going on in the second half it's mostly just exposition and panels after panels of characters with kind of a dead serious look or at least as dead serious as these characters get because we're dealing with the Justice League who have been around for so long that none of this is particularly surprising to them. Universe shattering events are basically what they deal with on a daily basis. That's another day in the office. Yeah. They do a nice job on the spot blacks, but they seem the team, I'm just going to say they to refer to the team, they seem to be insistent on making Batman's cowl always completely solid black, and in a few places... Batman's cowl is something that you really can't render realistically without, like, either making it look like a bulky helmet, as we saw in the Bale movies, or... Or like a weird kind of head sock thing with the horns, which is more like we saw it with Batfleck in BBS. Well, I think that it is something that needs to be stylized. Well, I hate to be predictable, but my boy Frank quietly did an alright job of making it look realistic. Fair enough. Just that I'm trying to think, like, you can make it look realistic, but this is... We are dealing with a man who dresses as a bat and fights both street crime and low-level villains in his own book and universe-level threats alongside aliens and gods in this book. There's also part of the current bat suit was designed by Capullo himself as a parting gift after he left this comic to do... I guess at the time he was working on that series with Mark Miller, Reborn. And so there's actually a really good example of the design work here because it's like the cowl and cape are pure black except for the underside, which is purple. And the bat symbol and the belt are pure black except with yellow outlines to illustrate contours. And there's... There's some, like, details on the suit itself to create a a sense of depth, but it's not as overboard as it was in the New 52, where there were, like, little panels and hinges everywhere on the suit. Yeah, that's... Yeah, I think it's a generally good design, but, yeah, there's this page where the whole team is standing around looking at, like, some document, and let's see if I can find the exact page for you. It's page 28... Yeah, this is a big one this week. And where, yeah, they're standing around a table and he's right in front of Superman, who is bright blue and he's solid black. True. Well, they Superman and Batman have always had a deliberate color contrast. I, I guess. Also, I should note, in terms of design, the cold open, the part of this comic I actually liked, they've set up the Justice League in an alien battle arena and they're wearing gladiatorial armor designed by mongol to inhibit their power so like superman's breastplate is covered in the dust of a thousand crushed red suns that to so he can't use his powers and the flash has these boots on that are locking his 
speed into place to keep from his super vibrating powers. And, of course, it's all ridiculous. It doesn't have anything even resembling a science-type explanation, but it's clear that the writer trusted the artist to actually do this, to go the extra mile and create unique designs for stuff that's just going to be discarded in a few pages anyway. And it's a nice touch. Similarly, there are unique designs on each of the robots fighting the Justice League, the ones which had a back door in them that that allowed the Justice League to take control of them and combine as, like, a big Justice Megazord. Yeah, you'd have to have a... Like, how do I put this? For just a little like, weird opening to having to design whole new, like, a set of armor for each of the Justice League plus a bunch of robots and have them combined together. Like, considering how tossed off that could look, this, that actually comes together quite well. Unless... Well, there was a quote about Jack Kirby from one of the other Marvel artists saying how if he, the script called for just a fleet of starships, Kirby would still design a radically different starship for every model in the fleet. And it feels like that, where it's the kind of detail that isn't necessary in any narrative sense, but is tr- tremendously appreciated as just making it a, a more enjoyable experience. And like all these Justice Zords appear to be some t- kind of animal or humanoid, like the Batman thing obviously looks like kind of a humanoid bat with wings, but Superman's Zord is like an ape with shoulder cannons, and Hank treads for feet. Green Lanterns appears to be some kind of frog, I guess the green thing. And, of course, Aquaman gets a giant crab. Oh, that's what it's supposed to be. Yes, fortunately, Aquaman quickly figured out how to attack its weak point for massive damage so he could gain control of it. This is where I get to nerd out, because I was looking at this and they all come together as a Megazord, and after I stopped freaking out, I thought, okay, this is better than the Megazord from Power Rangers Ninja Steel, but I'm not anywhere near as good as the design from the original Megazord or the... Or the Ninja Megazord. But yes, I agree. Yes, I'm. They've been doing a bunch of Power Rangers comics, so when we find a way for me to talk about them without being completely insufferable about Power Rangers continuity, then I'm sure we'll cover them in one of these episodes. Don't even worry about it. I mean, it's not like you're going to need a jar for those references. Yeah, well, we'll see. But also. As an action scene, this is good. Another place we can point out what's good about Capullo's art that he does have a more cartoony and less strictly representational style than is the general house style at DC Comics. Like the characters' faces and bodies have a little bit of rubberiness to them so that they can do like the dramatic poses in the fight and it doesn't look like they're floating. It looks. Illusion of movement is conveyed. Yes, and there are a few spots where he wants to get every single muscle in, but he's not super beholden to that. Like we, when we looked at uh, Bloodstrike Remastered, like every shot of the heroes had every muscle focused on this. Like in places where it needs, it's been simplified. 
which is good because they will reduce the detail in scenes where the characters are in the background and it just wouldn't make sense to have all the details added. But they do... When the characters are super up close, the detail is more emphasized, which is generally how human vision works. We see more details on things closer up, but in comics, there because it's a constructed reality, there is sometimes a tendency to try to make everything super detailed. Um, I'm not sure how much else we have to cover for this. Well, we should also point out that even in the second half of the comic, amid the exposition, we get a big, big spread taking up most of a page of Batman grappling a feathered dinosaur. Yeah, that, there's oh yeah, part of this takes place on an island with dinosaurs, and it's it's not even really brought up that much. It's like oh okay, which does also kind of tie into my general disinterest in the second half, because when everything's treated like a big deal, nothing is. So well, The dinosaurs aren't treated as a big deal. They aren't, because I guess there's so much else going around. More attention for this comic, since we're sure not reading it for the story, and other than people who have a real fetish for DC continuity which I'm not. There isn't much here other than just, like, the dumb toyetic fun. But the dinosaurs are an afterthought next to all the garbage with the hawks and the black hawks and the Barbados and the multiverse and the glavin, the hoy glavin! Yeah, I... Yeah. I, I, you couldn't, like, give me a test about the plot of this because I'm sure I'd lose all of it in a few days. I know that there was a Megazord and that there was something to do with the return of Bruce Wayne, but beyond that... Oh, one the last... first return of Bruce Wayne, I might add. There's also some stuff in the prologue comics about the second return of Bruce Wayne with, like, the metal that isn't key to this plot being what was used to reboot him and restore his memories in the final part of Snyder's Batman story. I will add that there's a nice trick that's used in a few places here. Um, instead of cutting constantly cutting back and forth, like, between the characters, like, if you've got a talking scene, the temptation is to do, like, a shot of one character, a shot of the other, a two-shot, a two-shot from a different angle, and then a single shot. They um They cut to other stuff in the room. Like, there's this... Like, they're having a conversation, they cut to a statue of Hawkman... Like, it's already in the panel for the previous one, but just cutting to it is, like, a nice way to... Like, it was a hell thing that was done in Hellboy, Hellboy a lot, where they just cut to, like, a frog, like, in a scene somewhere, and it wouldn't necessarily be connected to the plot, it would just be setting up a tone. Well, the thing is, all this is connected to the plot, so it doesn't... Like, when they're, the former Hawk girl, current Black Hawk leader is talking about the history of carter hall and we like see all these photos and images like all of it are clear references they're not just supposed to look cool but it also kind of reinforces just what kind of comic this is where simply referencing that something existed then jamming it into a plot is considered good enough to carry the story 
I guess they're even including like the map Morrison made of the multiverse, all fifty-two. Yeah, they are. I've yeah seen this like map image like shown in like a comic from like like over a year ago maybe, and now it's just in the comic as a thing the characters are talking about. Which when the map is so much more detailed than I shouldn't say detailed, but it's got a bunch more gradients and effects on it than like the people looking at it. It's a little weird. Don't worry, they show the back, which is the dark multiverse, which is literally just a black sheet of paper. Yeah, I yeah, I can't even begin to start really thinking about that. I don't know if that's hilariously stupid or just stupidly stupid. Yeah, it depends on your mood, I guess. But yeah, I guess I was, like, when they cut to the island, they have this one panel of just a close-up of a dinosaur's eye. And, yeah, I guess, I, like, I think, I thought that was a nice shot. And I thought maybe they'd done a bit more but now that i'm looking through it i suppose they have a little bit of a shot of these like scroll things yeah that like isn't like a not necessarily needed little close-up and it's got like an interesting like shadow effect on them too generous this is for the most part it's just cutting between like action that's happening uh a few times you get like a tilted angle Uh, i guess the larger thing is in the end, did you enjoy this comic when reading it for the pictures? Like, would do you think this was a visually enjoyable experience, even in the parts that were a lot drawler? I'd say yes. I not my favorite thing in the world, but as far as like like well, more house style stuff goes, uh, where you, you sort of have to stay within like a band, like. Like, there are really crazy ways to depict Batman, but in a big crossover event, you are somewhat limited on those. I think this is, like, yeah, one of the better examples of house style. I, I don't even think it's that house style by DC's standards. No? But I do, I but I do think it was pretty good visually, especially in the first half. And in the second half, I feel like it did had some neat tricks to try to move the story along, though... It does seem to be a writer's problem to think that having montages of different images in either flashback or cutting aside is a substitute for actually having things go on in the immediate story. I suppose that if you're making a comic like this and you're trying to lay out all this lore, like you start with, okay, this, com- this these characters have a conversation with these characters and these are all the things that need to be explained. How do we put action into it? And, like, starting the story on an alien planet with a bunch of giant robots is probably the bluntest way to do that. Well, it's a cold open, like they did in the Batman Brave and the Bold cartoon all the time, except there the cold open was generally not more entertaining than the rest of the story. Oh, well. I I wouldn't be that opposed to picking up more issues of this. I, keep on being completely wacky. I haven't decided yet whether or not I will. I may do it for the same reasons that I'm picking up Champions and the Tom King Batman War of Jokes and Riddles, which is mainly so I can tell you about it. Ah, uh, yes, the War of Jokes and Riddles. When it gets to the end, maybe you can give us a summary of all the things that have happened asterisks in that comic maybe we'll review one of the issues because it's a different artist than the batman comic we looked at and the art actually has a lot of selling points that almost make up for the script being so 
into itself. Yes. But moving on from DC to the world of Valiant and Secret Weapons number three. This was a very pleasant surprise. It seems like, based on the recap, the premise of this is in the Valiant world where they have psyots as the regular people who just develop powers, kind of like the mutants or the inhumans in Marvel. These guys are the ones who don't have particularly useful powers. Like, there's a guy who can turn to stone, but is completely immobile when he's turned to stone. There is a girl who can talk to birds. And there's a guy who can summon inanimate objects, but there is absolutely no control over what he makes or when he makes it. And, of course, because this is a more realistic comic they're still being hunted for it fortunately it the the gist of the issue is them trying to run from the police the few people with these largely useless powers as opposed to like immediately getting to the superhero stuff in a lot of ways this is the kind of comic i wish the x-men would be and hasn't really been like if you were going to put it in a genre you would say superhero because it is people who have powers and they seem to be banding together in a team and they've got code names and they're they're being chased down. But it seems it doesn't take all its cues from the superhero genre. I I don't think anyone has a costume, per se. Um, And it seems to be, like, the focus isn't on, like, trying to stop someone, like, destroying or ruling the world or anything like that. It's a lot more pared down and about the small moments in people's lives. Um, according to the recap page, normally the people with useless powers are sent by the Harbringer Foundation to a a separate place called the Willows, where I guess they just live out the rest of their lives in peaceful seclusion. But one of the characters, Avi, the guy who can turn his skin into stone at the cost of his mobility, is just trying to live a normal life and go finish his college classes. And since he's a member of the Sikh faith and wears a turban, he's automatically a target of suspicion in America well before he even uses any kind of powers. And as the comic points out, as is sadly true in real life, the Sikh people haven't even done any terrorism and are have been the victims of hate crime simply by virtue of looking like Muslims based on dress and generalized racial identity, which, on the one hand, discriminating against anyone is horrible. That needs to be said. Apparently, it still needs to be said. But it also it kind of points out something that I've always found trouble handling in the X-Men, which is that the X-Men are superhero humans in a world of other superhumans who aren't constantly targeted. And it assumes that the racists in the Marvel Universe are so meticulous about who they hate that it has to boil down simply to wearing an X. Well, that problem's going to arise with any sort of shared universe. Like, the premise of the X-Men has an assumption about how, about the world, about how people 
would react to heroes, and Spider-Man has a similar... Like, it also makes assumptions about how the world would react to superheroes, and, like, you throw in, like, the Hulk and Thor and yada yada yada. They're all... Each of the individual premises make assumptions about the world, but they don't necessarily all gel together. And well, maybe it's because the Valiant universe is a lot smaller, and... Its reboot in the past few years has done really well, partly because that small size has space to give creators a lot more to work with. Yeah, but I don't know if like the Faith character is like generally liked by the population, or Ninjak, or whoever else they got. But I don't know about Exo Manowar. That was the only one of the two Valiant books I was reading in. The previous Harbinger comics, most of it was the characters on the run from the Harbinger Foundation, so they didn't really have time to make a big public deal about their powers and worry about how they're perceived. Here, though, it seems like Avi is targeted by racial profiling more than power profiling which is why the police go up to pick him up in this huge riot vehicle that it's, pretty, it's a design that looks a bit like a mixture between a tank and a, a, another kind of assault vehicle. I'm not quite sure how to describe it. It also got a big plow on it. It's the first boss from Metal Gear Solid Peace Walker, isn't it? You beat me to it, but... Yes, it's this very elaborate police tank. But um, before we get on to too much of that... um. This also seems to be the work of a team. I don't know if they've worked together a lot, but they seem to. The team seems to be working very in sync, because the coloring and the pencils really work together there. Based on the jet, how comic creators are generally written, I'm guessing that Rule Allen is the penciler and inker, and Patricia Martin, who also does the letters, is the colorist. Yeah, and it is a visually impressive book, and it does a great job creating a visual identity for these characters that's completely bereft of them having costumes or even when they use their powers. Like, we know the kind of a lot about Avi just by looking at him. I mean, obviously, there's the turban, but he's also got glasses, a neat beard, a lab coat because he's a med student, I guess. A skateboard because he's fairly laid back and his in his own words his ambitions are to take my classes get back to my dorm take a claw and a pin and listen to radiohead all things that i agree with yeah and also um where in the the dc metal comic everything seemed to be like superman is basically the same blue in every shot and the flash is generally always the same red. This seems to want to have a distinct palette for every single scene, and it does a nice thing of like breaking up the pacing of everything. And there's also on the first page, which is a nine-panel grid. The first four panels are, have like this reddy palette, and the last four panels have like a bluey palette. And the panel between them is sort of a mix of the two, which. Like, I it's interesting to use palettes to show a transition in space. True. So, a lot of this comic is grids. Either, like, the traditional nine-panel, three-by-three grid that we was popularized with Watchmen, or just 
like a clearly designed set of tiers with a bunch of smaller panels. And it doesn't have any elaborate tricks in terms of the panel borders. There isn't even any bleed over. I think that it conveys the story extremely clearly and concisely, and it does a great job of moving sensibly from topic to topic by visual. And it's also that there's a lot of detail in the art in terms of backgrounds, except in the action scenes where it just goes to a flat background of a bold color, which sometimes is conspicuous negative space, but most of the time really helps focus the action. So it, I was pretty impressed with just how well this reads and creates a universe that is understandable and compelling, even when you're just going in on the third issue. Yeah, just looking at this fight scene now, where they seem to drop out the backgrounds in favor of these really bold colors, yeah, I was just... I think part of the reason it works is because, like, sometimes they'll divide a, they'll have a tier divided into, like, four images, and they'll juxtapose that against um, tiers that have just one image, which creates, like, a really interesting pacing thing, where you, like, you zip really quickly through the tiers, the tier with four images, and then you're forced to linger on the shots on the image that takes up a whole tier. But yeah, that's used throughout. It's true. It seems like a really simple trick, but I can't think of any of the um, like comics we've talked about in previous episodes that have done it. Just to like, just enforce a sense of pacing by, well, yeah, just juxtaposing a lot of small images against a larger image. It works. Like, I'm not not sure which page number this is, but during the fight scene where they're rescuing Avi from the pigs. Like, there's, there are two bars on the second and fourth tiers that are just record, recording data from inside the tank thing. And you can only see the action through, like, the tiny little slit to show, like, one of the cops being taken down by the bird girl. He's just kicked him in the face rather impressively. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of and really this, fluid, like... Like, the body language in this is really fluid. Yeah, they're not shy about having, like, two shots next to each other, which are, like, the same character from the same angle. And because, like, the body motion is done in such a way that it really, like, conveys the movement of the characters. So really nice cartooning in this. And it's an impressive scene, especially because of the limitations inherent in the setting and characters like the other than the stylization on the police apv it is a fairly standard swat vehicle and the main characters themselves have generally more subtle and less flashy powers and even the ones who have more interesting powers don't really have the ability to use them with like the desired efficient effect so when we get something like Avi having to defend himself against some local thugs and he jumps, avoids a kick by jumping above it, then in the style similar to the Tanuki suit from Super Mario Bros. 3, turning to stone and landing on the guy's knee, breaking it. Yeah, that is, that is a clever little idea. It's, it's part of the appeal of this kind of comic to see the characters having to survive by being resourceful with what they have and 
being out to use it in ways that actually are more impressive than how higher level heroes would use their general powers. And it's not even like street level martial arts that they're using. I mean, there are some nice face kicks from what's Bird Girl's name? Nikki Finch. Oh, her last name is Finch. That's kind of clever, I guess. But they don't have like Batman mastery of martial arts and a lot of what they do is just the whatever's needed in the moment just to get out of the situation. Yeah. I think I'll, I like this one. I think I'm going to keep reading it. I might go back and read previous issues to get a larger sense of the story and characters beyond this. I think it did a good job of having an understandable narrative in the unit. This, this unit being an issue largely because of just how clearly it's told and how effectively it's detailed to create a sense of character and setting. Yeah, but I imagine if somehow you were confused the same way I was and thought this was an event comic, this would, yeah, if that's what you were looking for, this probably wouldn't be your kind of thing. Like, But then why would you be looking for an event comic? Well, presumably there must be someone out there who's specifically into that kind of thing. But no. I don't know. I see people who are into specific events, and I see people, am people sometimes, who buy them just to, because they're what's be, be, being talked about, what's big in the industry. I don't think there's a lot of people who actually like the notion of having line-wide events as a regular thing with like most of the publication line being tie-ins to another comic. But if somehow you are that person, this is like it's fairly pared down. There's a, some good cartooning, but this like the rendering of the characters is somewhat simplified. Like there's no like cross hatching or anything. And no, but there is effective use of coloring to create value. It's relatively minimal, but it works to do that. And if you are someone who's looking for events and tie-ins, you're probably one of the Marvel bean counters, and you probably would not like this comic, but then you have bigger things to worry about as the diminishing returns of your company's approach to publication are finally impossible to ignore. And, yeah, and if that starts to come apart, you could always read Wirecats by Neil Cafford, a superhero adventure with bombast and excitement on every page. True. Well, I wouldn't say every page. Some pages are reserved just for despair, and some pages are reserved for cute kittens. Yeah. That's a good place to go, as well as to go to DaveClarkArt.com. That's yes. another place you should go for high-quality visual entertainment. Thanks, man. Um, yeah, we'll start wrapping it up. Okay, I'll, I'll, um, do we know what we're reading next week? Okay, we have two books. Let's bring it up again. Okay, we we have my pick. Rom versus Transformers, Shining Armor, number two, by John Barber, Christos Gage, and Alex Milne. And your pick was, and I, I'll say this out loud so you don't have to, Shirtless Bear Fighter, number three. Written by Jody Lehup and Sebastian Gurner and illustrated by Nil Verbendrell. And for the record, it's shirtless is one word, then a two-word hyphenated phrase, bear fighter. This is a human being who fights bears without a shirt. 
not a bear without a shirt who's a fighter or a person who exclusively fights bears that don't have shirts. I mean, it, it, it is also that last thing. Well, I do see on the cover that there are some bears with shirts, so... Oh, ooh, a surprise. But yes, um, this is... did an episode a while back where we read a Transformers comic and were both baffled because we don't know the Transformers. And Neil has since become a Transformers boy, so... We'll get it was to- already a Transformers boy, just a different kind of Transformers. But the Dang. comics... In large part, do Alex Milne's work have really gotten a lot better? So I guess we should say um, Neil has grown up into a Transformers man. But yes, we can okay. fully you can fully expre- appreciate the the extent of that transformation on next week's episode. But until then, see ya. Bye.